I'm DeMelo Roberts, stage and studio on ArtsWatch. This week we're focusing on Oscar-winning actor William Hurt. He died in Portland on March 13, 2022. He was 71 years old. Hurt was a prolific actor both on stage and on the screen. He lived in Portland because he liked it here, especially with the arts community and being close to the outdoors. Some people might not know that Hurt was an avid golfer and he loved to bicycle. Hurt was also close friends with veteran actor and director Alan Noss, who was the long-running artistic director of Artist Repertory Theater. The two actors started out together as spear carriers in 1975 at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in Ashland. Many years later, they were still friends. And in 2011, Hurt appeared on stage with Noss in Harold Pinter's No Man's Land at Artist Rep. I saw that production at the old Artist Rep space. It was intimate and immediate. And you were in close proximity to Hurt while he was performing. His subtle approach to the craft will live long in my memory. Shortly before the play opened, many of us were trying to get an interview with Mr. Hurt, who was elusive to media, having been burned by interviewers in the past. Someone who did get an interview was Portland journalist and broadcaster Dave Paul. Thanks to Artist Rep's publicist, Nicole Lane, Paul delved into a deep and personal conversation with Hurt. Featured in more than 60 films, such as Children of a Lesser God, The Big Chill, Broadcast News, and Body Heat, Hurt won the Oscar in 1985 for his role in Kiss of the Spider Woman. But his first love was theater, which led him back on stage to regional theaters, including doing four plays in Portland at Artist Rep. For the one-year anniversary of William Hurt's passing, I'd like to play this insightful interview by Dave Paul, first broadcast in 2011. It was in the studio at Kink FM, recorded by engineer Alan Archer. What brings you to that theater in this town? Why Why do you come to Portland? And you've been in several of their shows now. I'm always looking for theater. So I was doing a tour a number of years ago of um, the Northwest, because I live in the Northwest. I live in Oregon. You do? I live in Eastern Oregon. Don't tell anybody where. Okay. <laughs> we'll keep that a secret. Um, and I was doing a, a, a Rome, roaming of uh, the small theaters in the Northwest, and I was mm-hmm. getting my... VW bus, which at the time I had. I wish I still had it. I was looking in places from ranging from Winnebuck up to Walla Walla and all Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Northern California, places like that. Because I, I was looking for small small venues which had good work. I'm a classically trained actor. and um, A graduate of Juilliard. Yeah, in Tufts. And have been a member of a repertory company in New York City for 12 years. Circle Repertory and... To me, it's mostly about theater. I don't see film as being different from theater. I see that all as being one thing. I think it all is theater. I think most commercials should send 10% of their take to Sophocles. And So I was wandering around, and I, I came to Portland, obviously, because Portland was uh, and Seattle were the two primary contenders for me to look for venues. Well, I have read that in your earlier career, you were in Ashland. Yeah. Uh, well, the earliest part, yeah. The right Shakespeare out of, right Festival. Out of, right out of the box, yeah. Wonderful. I did a summer there, yeah. In fact, uh, it was ironic that I played um, the father in Long Day's Journey Tonight here last year. Yes. And had played Edmund there 35 years ago. Well, so you come full circle. It was a circle. There, there, I don't know if of all the circles have come, <laughs> come complete. I hope not. I want to hang around for a bit. So I met, I was sitting in the audience after a show here, and um, Alan Nose walked up to me, and I thought I recognized him. It had been a long, long time. 
Alan Noss is, Noss the, is artistic the artistic director. director of this theater. And so we, we I went, good grief, because we were spirit carriers at Ashland all those years ago. We were literally carrying spirits <laughs> in a production of R&J, which is Romeo and Juliet. And um, so we hooked up, and um, and his tastes and mine very much match. I think it's uh, his choice of uh, the, the theater's choice of material is excellent. And also, I was looking for a venue which would give me six weeks of rehearsal, since um, my reputation will attract a lot of of seats, uh, they can afford to attack a couple, couple two weeks on to the typical uh, modern rep- uh, rehearsal schedule, which is only four now. And I think that that's starvation wages in terms of starvation feeding. I don't think you can breathe the heart into a play in that amount of time. So a six-week rehearsal period, a period is something I studied in, in Juilliard and elsewhere as being the minimum amount of time to really responsibly prepare a project. And, and and Alan felt that way, too. So every time I work here, we give it a full six weeks, and we um, institute the devices of, of proper preparation, which are uh, mask work, improvisation, structural text work, um, lots of, of physical work. And um, these are the things which are perceived as being dispensable now, and they're not dispensable. They're not conveniences. They're not luxuries. They're essentials. And we work on phenomenal material in a phenomenal way here. And that's the way you're going to get it done, especially with the kind of courage that the people here have to keep that theater alive. ART is is well-respected. Very, very unusual because most of the theaters in, in this country are being allowed to die because the country is paying less and less attention to its living arts all the time as its integrity crumbles. That was going to be one of my questions about <clears throat> the state of, of support for performing arts America in particular. America is not supporting the performing arts, no. Because America is not supporting very much of sort of mass cultural intelligence right now, I don't think. Would you say from your experience that Portland might be unique in that sense, that we do I wouldn't want to draw more? attention to it because that will bombard it with, with typification. Which would be the worst thing if you put bumpling. It's like it's like the it's like keep Portland weird bumper stickers. I'm, I'm, I think something must be wrong. That's part of that's the avant that's the that's the prong of the attack. You know, to typify character is the opposite of character. So no labels. Well, uh, I mean, if you want to if you want to keep something uh, authentic, then why typify it? Yes. So typification would be the opposite of it. Would be it would be antimatter to its matter. I would think in Portland, we tend to pride ourselves on being unique. Pride goeth before the fall. Ah, indeed. So be careful. Indeed. And I'm an outsider, so I can tell you I've seen a lot of bad things. I wanted to draw you out a little bit, if you would, on on your love of the ensemble work on stage and in film as well. Mm. The the group nature of performing arts, um, for those of us who are not actors, how can you describe that as... I think, you know, the fundamental is, you know, more heads are better than one as long as the heads are are not, you know, enslaved to ignorance. The idea is that releasing your curiosity freely and trustingly into the work among others who are as truly passionate, and I don't mean as fixated, I mean as passionate as you are, uh, truly interested in in this, this sort of work, is um, a harmony, which is a, a, a frequency of intelligence that's much higher than any isolated frequency of intelligence can be. So how you develop the skill 
of working together is an ethic. Not it's it's actually it's actually in the hierarchy of values in most dictionaries ethics are 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 held higher than morals. Ethics are the way you work. So the Tao Te Ching, for instance, or the 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 Tao would be other cultures I'm talking about have talked about the way. The way you do things is really more important almost than what you do. You could take ideally you could take the phone book and make a great play out of it. <laughs> really? But it would depend on how you did it. If you int- if you opened the page of a single page of the phone book and you analyzed it according to every avenue of curiosity that you wanted to leash unleash into it, you could come up with something fabulous about every one of those human beings that's listed there because every one of those human beings is unique. Now, uniqueness can't be typified, but the, each one of those names is a unique experience of truths that are applied to all of us. So the more specific you become, ironically, the more akin you become. If you take the time to develop trust in an ethical, skilled way with other interested people in, a, in, a, in the framework of an art form that you chose intrinsically, you will get to a deeper experience of that than you could ever do alone. So that is the idea. The idea of an ensemble is to prove your trustworthiness to others and to expect them to prove it to you rather than walking in, which we do a lot in movies, jumping out of the box, shaking your smile and other attraction apparatus at the camera and running on home. That's superficial nonsense. And if you want an audience to be treated with the respect they deserve, which means that they've gotten into a car, they've put on some clothes, they've paid for a ticket, they've sat in a chair among strangers in a dark room to consider their state as human beings, that's a great act of faith. If you want to treat that act of faith, that courage, with any kind of respect, then treat your process with the same amount. You mentioned the word courage, and I I believe it takes a great deal of courage to risk being naked out there in front of people. I, I think we're all naked. I mean, you're naked underneath those clothes. Indeed. I mean, and, 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 and especially for our security guards <laughs> at airports these days. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we're all naked. We're naked the whole time. We get spat out naked, and we, and we go crawling back into the earth naked. I mean, who isn't naked? So why not assume it? Why not just say that the emperor's clothes really don't make much difference? And that's the whole point. Like, if you take a look at the mask, the so-called mask of the theater, it isn't the mask that's informing you. It's those two little holes in the mask. That's where your soul is. And that's you. You're not there to show. You're there to play. And you're there to play very responsibly. And to engage. To engage yourself. And how can you engage an audience if you haven't even engaged yourself or each other? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to be the remedy be the remedy by being trustworthy among your peers. My guest is William Hurt. We're talking about art and the creative process to some extent. Uh, the play that you're in, No Man's Land, was written by Harold Pinter. It's a theater of the absurd type of show. Well, I wouldn't use the word type any more than I use the word, no. you know, Portland is unique. Um, <laughs> All right. I mean, I wouldn't typify Portland because I like it. Good. So I wouldn't typify Pinter and I wouldn't typify play as absurdist. I don't think it is absurdist. There's a, there is a, there's a number of what I call 
predicates upon which you can base a production of the play. The predicate can be in, in, is in most most formats. Like let's take let's take a look at Spielberg. Okay, that's a he's a master of the adolescent morality tale, and that's a format. And he tells linear historical stories in and his subject is adolescent morality, and that's what he does. There are other people who do other things. Most of our stories are told in a linear historical format. Like, you know, at 10.02, he jumped on the train. At 10.45, somebody gave birth in his car there. And at 10.57, he saved the baby. And then at 10, you know, at 11.03, the cops came, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, That's a story on a linear historical line. There are other ways of telling stories. There are multi-time stories. There are multifaceted. You can tell things in absurdist ways. You can do multi-layer stuff. I know my son, for instance, was doing a play recently at uh, NYU where they where they actually had two plays going on at the same time, and the two plays would interweave between theaters. So, um, you know, my first question was, does that mean everybody has to go see both? <laughs> yes. And he was saying, you can see one and get it all if you're imaginative, but you should see both. So... There are different ways to um, connote meanings. Kafka did it one way. Chekhov did it another way. Sophocles was very, very aimless. I mean, linear, historical, in lots of ways, using the chorus, things like that, devices. So there are different ways. In this particular case, there is a predicate upon which you can base a production, which is, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly linear, historical. There are others as well. People like to protect what they call its ambiguity and its ambivalence and its, you know, they use other words for it. But I see no reason at all to do that, especially because the meanings in any great play are going to include irony and ambiguity, whereas your Google search engine doesn't. No. Yeah. (laughs) That's why Google is making us stupid. You mentioned your son, and his name is? Alexander. Alexander. And he is in this play with you. Mm. That's unique. I, I don't know of any father-son team. You keep using team. that word. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. The Barrymore did it. Um, I I don't see it as a dynasty, that's for sure. He chose this work as a separate human being. When he walked on the stage with me the first time in front of an audience, I I did have one moment where I went, you know, that's my son. But... I didn't really feel that more than I felt I was just working with a really good actor, a sound, well-trained, responsible artist. And in the program notes, you proudly say yeah, that yeah, you're learning it. from your son. Oh, no, and it, and, it, and it is absolutely true. You know, he actually had as his teachers, a couple of his teachers were classmates of mine at Juilliard. And they're better than me, by the way, and <laughs> always were. In fact, Janet Zarish is one of the main acting teachers at NYU and was one of his principal acting teachers at, at I mean, there, he, she was the best actress by far in my class, as far as I was concerned, at Juilliard all those years ago, 72 to 75. And he's better than I am. He's been taught better than I was. I mean, I'm not saying that I was taught badly by any means. I'm saying that there have been improvements. And it's wonderful to see that. And I'm seeing, I'm getting a litmus of how, how many and how wonderful those improvements are by seeing this really well-trained young man can you give us an example of what you've learned in terms um, of the, your the, acting the technique? The application of a lot of the preparatory... You see, Alex leads us every night in our warm-up exercises. Oh. And he does it 
beautifully. I mean, really professionally. It's extraordinary. So he'll lead us through a series of physical exercises, which, which what we call is warm, warm your instrument. So he'll start on the floor. We're all on the floor, and then we start stretching, and we do things in a sequence of stretching and lengthening exercises that you know reach from our lower extremities and to our highs, so that finally we're ending up with vocal exercises and things. And that helps us get ready for the evening. And he does that in a way which what's infused in it is a philosophy of release, which wasn't there when I was a student. There was more... It was sort of more impact-oriented when I was studying it. More, there was more, um, I won't say hostility, but I will say anxiety in it. And now what's been bred into his system, him as, an, as a performing artist, is a way of using all those exercises to immediately get into the release into the mechanism rather than the daring the mechanism. Hmm. So we would go stretch that, stretch that muscle harder um, people used to pull muscles, heavy duty, and ligaments in warm-ups because they would force that, that, that process too quickly. Whereas now it's very clear that he's had three years of, you know, 15-hour days, of five, releasing. six days a week, of training those exercises into um, permissions rather than to, into ultimatums. And that is something you can sense on a delicate level as an artist because most of what happens on stage is 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 a very small percent of the effort you make. Very small. It's like an iceberg. It's like the construction of character. You're only going to see 3% or 2% above the water. Character's all under the water. Same with really good work. Most of the work is underwater. In terms of backstory for Absolutely. your character? Absolutely. You know, you take a pianist who's, you know, you know you take, he's running Rachmaninoff's third and you can't see those fingers fly, but they're flying, and that's 10,000 hours. The 10,000 hours that's talked of in that book by that guy. What's the book? Gladwell. He talks about the 10,000-hour preparation theory, where everybody has to, I mean, to, to do anything well, you have to do it, you have to practice for 10,000 hours. So it looks easy to well, the rest it of looks, us. It looks easy, but really what it is is just, it's, again, accessing that point of faith. They have done, everyone sitting in that audience has done as much work in their way to get there as you have. They aim their effort maybe differently, or they've formed it differently, but they are as well-intentioned, they are as concerned as you will ever be. So in some way or other, you never, you can never condescend to them. You put your 10,000 hours together in your way, they do in theirs. The moment where there's a meeting, a sharing between you is equal, completely equal. There's no, you do not tell an audience what to think or feel. You ask a question as honestly as possible among them. Are, are there shadings and differences in your performance night to night? Oh, shading. <laughs> Major differences. Big, big deal. I, 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 I'll float. I mean, I'll always hit my, you know, my marks on time and I'll say the words, but. I do. I'm. I'm. am what they call seasoned. I'm, I'm what they call experienced. So I'm not worried about my stage skills. I'm worried mostly about you know how far can I, how deep can I go with them. So I'm, I'm, changing emotional lines, quite a lot. I don't see a lot of people who, in the theater today, having, having the theater skills 
and understanding and wisdom having been eroded over the last two, three decades uh, across the cultural board um, who, who share typically my, um, my reverence for preparation. And so the skill levels are, are separate. And I think the, the directors, where that comes into in case for me is directorial, that where they move directors into is people who are trying to, you know, really kind of want to move people around or make pictures. I don't see theater or film as pictures. I see it as smells, you know, much, much more organic. Smells? Much, smells in that, in that the China, as the Chinese have been saying for 5,000 years, it's easiest to trick the eye and hardest to trick the nose. What I mean is that it's the intentions that, that really are the key to the work. It is not the superficial results. Superficially, you have to be competent. But really, it is your, your mind, your true deep mind, is much more connected to your intentions. So it's getting, it's, it's getting to the point where you can release those intentions through the work where you make the deepest discoveries and share the most. Those are very much below the surface, very, very much below the surface. In fact, the surface is nothing, practically. So that all of this preparation you've done, all the study... It is to be released. There are two, to be released. There are two things you have to do in your working life. You have to learn it, and then you have to forget it. And they're equally difficult. It's, it's just as hard to learn it, to, to leave it, as it is to learn it. The play No Man's Land has several distinct silences where no one says or does anything. Mm. But there's a tension. There's something happening there that's unspoken, literally. Mm. What are those silences, and how do you know <laughs> when to go ahead? They're a relief. Uh, <laughs> because a lot of the time in life, you know, we, want, we want, just want to keep talking to hear ourselves. We don't want to be quiet. And you'll find that in, in society. Um, people are afraid to let silences exist. Um, in Pinter, his description of that is that he doesn't impose them arbitrarily. I mean, he doesn't say, if I say pause, you must pause. A lot of people do take it as rote law, but I don't. He says that as far as he's concerned, and this was in 74, 75 when he wrote it, of course, and, and for the number of years that he was in, in and directed productions of it afterwards, he says, and this is English culture, when you get to that point, if you're doing it just right, you won't be able to speak. So, now this is English culture. Now, this is a whole different language. I mean, we speak in, you know, Britannic accents. And, I mean, our, our, I, mean like I talk, you know, he, I mean, some of the people are talking like that, and, and, and I'm talking in a, what's called received pronunciation, RP. Uh, P, but they're very up there like that, you know. The upper crust. Well, upper, upper, you know, it's Oxford. But, you know, it's very, very, it's very, very, very open back throat. And mm. so that's a different way of, of communicating. Language is an amazing harmonic. I mean, how you speak, how you frame sounds inside your body. Your body is a sound chamber. And it is receiving and giving out lots of vibrations in lots of ways. How you speak and how you associate with each syllable per your cultural upbringing, is extremely ornate, extremely sensitive. And, for instance, when people will say, you know, there are some things, I'm bilingual, and I can say things in Spanish that I just can't say in English. 
you'll hear people say these things who are really good in two languages or three or four. So that's a true thing in this play that English culture, as as Pinter understood it, is a strong, is a really powerful player in a play which is, I wouldn't say so much absurdist, it's, it's about the decay of civilizations and what what memories we have within the settings of civilizations that we think we're still still or wish we were occupying. So that's where the absurdist thing comes in. There is a linear historical storyline you can tell with the play. But what, what if the subject of the play is who do we think we are and in what time and in what place? So in this play, you know, for instance, my son Alex is playing a young man in 74, 75. And I'm playing a guy who went through the Second World War, who fought in it. Let's say that I can assume that that's true. That confrontation is very much about what the play is. The assumptions that people make being very, very different from generation to generation, from civilization to civilization, and everywhere in between. So those pauses may be more English than they are American which means we have to understand Anglic pausings, and we have to understand all the cultural class distinctions, jealousies, envies, competitions, um, respects, loyalties that underlie all of the ways we relate, even in tiny ways, every day, in every way in our lives. And that's, right now it's happening in this room. We are all behaving according to a lot of rules. We don't normally notice that stuff, but that's the purpose of theater, is to refresh our understanding of the basics, truth. So we, we worked hard. For instance, uh, we got uh, wonderful help from some amazing people here locally about understanding what it meant to go, to go to Oxford, what it meant to come from East London, what it meant. And our understanding as Americans was quite parochial compared to you know, what we now know about the assumptions of class distinction in that culture. When you get into that, you start understanding when you've crossed a line, for instance, with somebody else and why that would cause you to check yourself from speaking out loud rather than thinking very, very hard about whether you've gone too far, offended somebody by saying something wrong and therefore put yourself in danger, put yourself in social danger. Society is all about structure. I would say, I tell this to people a lot, if you sign a social contract, you're exchanging personal freedoms for social security. So the relationship between individuality, personhood, and the social continuity of the whole, the whole seven billion of us, by the way, since a few days ago. Yes. Seven billion of us. Somehow, as you factor every day your, your, your identity, you're factoring those two facts. Who am I alone by myself? And how do I relate on some level with all the many circles of relationship I have to this whole family of 7 billion people here now? Some, somewhere inside you, you are asking those questions. And it is complicated. You mentioned the British society and the differences with American Big society. Big differences, yeah. How would you typify the differences in, in acting style well, of, of you could, British you'd actors? Have to, I mean, the beginning, you'd have to begin by saying, well, well, this country has four benign borders, 
clobbered, you know, unfairly the Mexicans. Canadians are friendly, so-called Pacific Atlantic. So the contiguous 48 are really kind of a cake bubble, you know, a cake that you put over the culture. You can become very, very illusioned inside a cake bubble where you're not forced to cross boundaries with other cultures. That started, you know, 200 and some odd years ago. We severed very much, and some people question whether the rightness of it entirely, from previous cultures. So this experiment had been going on for, you know, what Toynbee would call just past the point when civilization, great empires, you know, when they begin to fail. That culture did not cut itself off. It, it, has, it has instituted a parliamentary and therefore democratic system of self-operation, but it keeps the vestiges of previous systems for root's sake, the monarchy. And that, I mean, when we, for instance, Americans go to visit Europe, we're, we're wondrous about cobblestone streets and, and Tudor houses and all those quaint little, sweet little things, those toothless things <laughs> that, that are now postcards in our mind of their culture, when in fact, that represents a lot more than our casual understanding of it. So for an American actor to actually get into an English skin is a long journey because we have separated ourselves from that, that fealty over 200 years ago. It is possible that our, that our lack of current, con, well, I would say consistency culturally, the, 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 the people who are camped downtown versus you and me were making paychecks. Um, and and the 1%, for, for instance. That can be a direct result, in fact, from having cut, a, you know, burned a bridge, culturally, a couple, of, a couple of hundred years ago. For us to jump imaginatively into that other world, which is really still very much class-based, in ways that ours is but says it's not, is an interesting journey, imaginatively. Is but says it's not. We say we're not, but we be, our, our 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 strata are mostly financial, and we don't admit that much. As a dad, I'm sure you wish your son all the best in the many areas of his life. What would you wish for Alexander in his professional life? Have you mentored him? Have you guided him in his choices? I, can't. I mean, he's he's in a, he's in a, he's in a different boat on a different ocean. Um, I would wish for him the same chances I had. <laughs> and I don't know if he's going to get them. I'm worried. You know. You've had a heck of a ride. I've had a hell of a ride. I've had an amazing ride. And I'm not, I don't want it to be finished in the sense that I don't want it to have been a temporary idea. Um, I think mostly now about going back to school and about teaching. Does that attract you still? Oh, my God. I mean, I don't want anything more than to get back into classes. And, I, and the second thing I want is to be teaching other actors what it means to be fully indulged in their own curiosity, in their own best mind, their own best energy, which is the energy of curiosity, of skepticism, of instead of fear, instead of fear for the next job, give them a chance to really get their true fuel, you know, enervated, um, their curiosity, their wish to know. Let the release that. I mean, like, I was allowed to do that. 
And um, and I had a lot of teachers who who helped me, you know, refine my questions and ask my questions more probingly and deeper. And I I I I, I it was it's a, it's a absolute thrall it's a it's a thrill to be released into a topic and to allow have have an environment where you're allowed to truly um, ask the questions that you 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 uncork them you, you you're not suppressed anymore you're saying okay you mean it's okay to ask this question you mean it's okay I don't have to feel guilty to be smart <laughs> I would love to be part of the triggering mechanism to release that into back into the mainstream and for Alexander to have that. For all actors to have it. Yes. Especially, of course, my son. I was having lunch with a friend today. He said, how does William Hurt keep growing? Because he always is a pleasant surprise in every role he does. Mm. How do you keep learning and growing? I think one of the things you have to, well, I don't know. I mean, because I am growing. I mean, I, because I am. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, it's not, I'm not faking it. I, I, I'm asking and I think one of the first things is to admit what you don't know. I mean, the hardest thing to put down is your, you know, checking at the door is the ego. I mean, an overgrown ego. Let's say an outsized ego. This, I mean, certainly an ego is a muscle and has a perfectly functional use, as long as it's operated by something called a conscience. And when it isn't, then it goes into spasm because it thinks it's in control. <laughs> to, 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 to begin anything, you must say, I don't know. That's the hardest thing for most people to, to, to say because they're supposed to know. I mean, in a world where everybody's faking it, they're faking it because they're supposed to pretend that they know when they don't. They haven't been given the chance to tell the truth, which is, how could I possibly know? You didn't tell me. I wasn't given a chance to find out for myself. If you don't give people that chance, how are they going to know? Well, what they're going to do is they're going to do what kids do when, you know, bullying authorities expect them to know things they couldn't possibly know. They'll pretend. They'll act like they do, and they'll build a false bottom. And then you come up with this thing <laughs> that they call, you know, they call it an inflation. Inflation of values, inflation of and everything that represents values, including money. And then you get deflation, which is what you really have to watch out for, because then you have something that eats itself. In terms of learning and growing, you're known for doing intense study and putting yourself in situations like prison where you can learn mm. by being an environment mm. and, and actually contacting people in that world, yeah, soaking it in. Yeah. Is well, that the kind of exploring that you're yeah, referring to? Yeah, you know, to? the whole idea is to not be trapped in some stereotypes and projections. Because it's such a, it's, I mean, talk about prison. Prison is really thinking, you know, it's thinking you know something that you don't. Projecting because you're proud and afraid onto others. What, what you know, generalities. Then you used to actually talk to them. I mean, one of my bumper stickers used to be, I like people just not in groups. <laughs> and it's like, because... Not in groups. Well, you know what I mean, is that, I mean, there are some groups, I think, that, that do insist on an ethic of asking always, is this true? But I think that's quite rare to be able to, these days, to put together a structural organism that asks itself that as a primary life thread. Mostly, we build a church around a faith system, a faith idea, and then the church kind of eats the idea. The building takes over. <laughs> this is a normal process unless you have 
a cyclical um, codicil written into your spiritual constitution that forces you to reanalyze the nature of the relationship between the house and its spirit. So, you know, for instance, the Federalist Papers and stuff like that, they were saying, you know, you should be, you should take a look at this constitution every once in a while to see if it fits. We haven't looked at it once, really. We've tacked things on, and then we get embarrassed and untack them. You know, we go for Plessy versus Ferguson, and then we go for Brown versus Board of Education. Fifty years later, or more, when it was, but it was, it was completely unconstitutional to establish the separate but equal laws. Completely unconstitutional, and eradicated the spirit of the entire Civil War, which killed a twentieth of our population. Am I correct in in referring to the Buddhist sense of beginner's mind? Among the Buddhist, among the Buddhist, the Buddhist. I mean. There are many frameworks for this mind that I'm, that I'm trying lamely to talk about. Um, certainly that is one of them, one in which the fundamental questions, who am I, where am I, what am I supposed to be doing here, are important, absolutely crucial, spine-tingling questions. Um, they are the questions. And I think that an ensemble, to answer your first question or to get back to it, the idea of it is to be among those who are willing to ask that question in an informed way with each other. Because it does make you stronger if you can do that. If you can put your, your guns down at the door and come in and say, okay, I got the job. Now can I do the job? Tuning into one another, giving and receiving. Yep. Yep. Trusting. Yeah, but you have to, of course, there has to be a way to do that. There have to be guidelines. Those guidelines have to match two principles. So, um, um, so your, your so-called rules, the rules of the code of behavior in, for instance, some acting exercises is um, you, can, you can test me, but don't, don't, call, don't, don't break me. In many of, our, of the established, really established advanced rehearsal techniques, there will be a, a level of um, interaction where the operating principle is uh, change it just enough to really coax me to wonder, but don't harm me arbitrarily. So it's what some people think politics is, (laughs) which is restrained violence. Contact sport. (laughs) They say the problem is that that they've done away with the basic rules of engagement. And... um, They've, they've done away with the essence of the polemic. And I think that's why we're so aggrieved about our Congress. And that's why ideas like, you know, Buffett's about, well, if, 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 your, if your deficit goes over 3% of GDP, fire everybody. So it's an interesting, it's a very interesting solution. And, 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 and yes, it's oversimplified. But if you do, I mean, like last night, because my other son who lives here, he's in a course about Middle Eastern politics. And, and so I've been looking at this paper that he was given an assignment to do. And I said, well, what's your source material? And he said one of the things was his source material was uh, Why We Fight, which is this wonderful documentary made in 2005. And, uh, and it starts out with an important, very important moment in American history, which was Eisenhower's last day in office. When he made a speech in which he coined the phrase the military-industrial complex and how it can become, without an informed population, a terrible disaster for us all. And that was coming from a five-star general. That was coming from a five-star general 
who had not only won our war for us in in on the European theater, but a person who had just served as the civilian head and, again, the head of our armed forces simultaneously for eight years. Extraordinary, extraordinary speech. And on the basis of that speech, an analysis of perhaps how that that uh, problem that he described has blossomed into reality. And I think we have to be really, really, really concerned now. It would be good to go back and hear that speech again. Very good. Very, very good. It's a very clear speech. And what do the arts, what do the performing arts have to say to the... Any culture that doesn't support its living arts is a dying culture. Period. Period. All living, vital nations on the planet support their their arts. And they do so as a matter of the knowledge that it is a necessity to do so. It is not an, a convenience. It is not a luxury. It is food. Food for thought, for conscience. And we've had a lot of that today with our guest, William oh, Hurt. Stop, stop. Ta-da. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm a little, bit, I'm, well, I'm a little foggy. because We cold. are going to have to draw to a close here. Good, good, good. I'm so pleased to be able to, to share this time with you. <laughs> Thank you. It's been great. And I, I've, I've come away with some inspiration and, and uh, some freedom of thought. <laughs> good, good. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Dave Paul talking with actor William Hurt in 2011. I'd like to thank Dave Paul for sharing this interview and his memories with us. William Hurt died from complications of prostate cancer at his home in Northwest Portland on March 13, 2022. Film critic Roger Ebert wrote that William Hurt was one of the two or three best actors in American movies. That's it for Stage and Studio. You can find out more info to this podcast or hear it again on stageandstudio.org or orartswatch.org. Till the next conversation, I'm Dee Melo Roberts. Mm-hmm.